0: My research on the book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, and my research in writing that book, just, I'm not surprised by anything I hear anymore. It was so evil and so ugly in our history and so pervasive. There's nothing you can imagine that was not done in the name of racism. And, you know, the vestiges of it today are still just as bad that that we deal with. But when it was in its overt forms... Just insane. Just insane. When I was writing my book, there were about three times, and I can't tell you what, in hindsight, what caused it, but there were at least three times where I had a visceral breakdown in my office. I just had to stop. Like I felt like I was drained, and there was oppression literally forcing my body down. I had to, like, just basically cower at my desk for an hour. 30 minutes to an hour. It was an oppressive thing just to just to take in the truth of all that history in so many times and to know that the preachers were the ones leading the propaganda in so many areas.
1: That was attorney and theologian Joel McDermott. I know that feeling. It's hard to talk about. I can barely read about the inhumanity of white mobs, and frenzies of violence inflicted upon black people throughout American history. To me, being overwhelmed seems like a reasonable reaction. While I understand why people want to avoid strong negative emotions, I can't justify whitewashing history to do it. The history is what it is, my friends. We have to face it. This is part two of our examination of David Barton's handling of racism and slavery in the Jefferson Lies. In the first part, we began making a case that Barton whitewashed Jefferson's record as an enslaver of human beings. It is obvious to us that Barton could not handle the truth and did not want to portray the whole of Jefferson's record. In this episode, we do not take up the issue of Jefferson and Sally Hemings. We intend to provide a bonus episode on that subject. Instead, we provide more evidence that Jefferson was not a consistent opponent of slavery or a champion of civil rights, as Barton claims.
2: with green but the season's going spring to spring and fall to fall walk a
1: little further cause the world awaits us all i'm warren
3: throckmorton and i'm michael coulter
1: and we wrote getting jefferson right fact-checking claims about thomas jefferson you're listening to the podcast series telling jefferson lies a story about how history can be hijacked for ideological and political purposes. In previous episodes, we told the story of how David Barton's best-selling book about Thomas Jefferson was removed from publication in 2012. Today, we continue what we started last week by pointing out historical errors in the Jefferson Lies. Today, we conclude a two-part focus on the Jefferson Lies and slavery and racism. This series also tells a broader story about the surge of Christian nationalism and the misuse of history which often goes along with it. In the end, we're going to turn our attention to the history of religious pluralism and the freedom of conscience in the United States. This is Episode 6, Whitewashing Jefferson, Part 2.
3: In our founding a woven tapestry of amazingly sublime ideas that were violated in thought and praxis from the get-go over and over again
1: when historian Troy Jackson refers to a quote woven tapestry of amazingly sublime ideas end quote he is speaking of the natural rights of all people and especially the equality of all humans But then he correctly hastens to add that the new nation violated those sublime ideas from the start. Jackson could have also been speaking about Thomas Jefferson. Nowhere is the violation and contradiction of principles clearer than in considering Jefferson's statements and actions regarding race and slavery. In his defense of Jefferson, David Barton chooses to focus on Jefferson's lofty statements of equality denunciations of slavery, and occasional support for emancipation of African slaves. However, in the Jefferson Lies and his public appearances, Barton is uber-selective in what he reports on those topics. In the first part of this two-part series, we showed that Barton's claim that Jefferson did not free his slaves because Virginia law made it illegal was egregiously false. Barton deliberately omitted part of a 1782 Virginia law which allowed enslavers to emancipate slaves via a deed recorded at their county courthouse. In this installment, we examine Barton's claims that Jefferson was a consistent supporter of black civil rights. In the Jefferson Lies, Barton claimed that, quote, despite the fact that Jefferson was unable to free his slaves, Under the requirements of state law, he nevertheless remained a local, national, and even global voice advocating emancipation. He helped steadily turn the culture in a direction that would allow equal civil rights to eventually be secured for all Americans regardless of race. Contrary to Barton's claims, we will show that while other enslavers all over Virginia were freeing their slaves, Jefferson ratcheted up his commitment to the slavery business. Instead of arranging his affairs to give human beings the same natural rights he enjoyed, he increased his dependence on slavery. Given his rhetoric in favor of the natural rights of man, we feel we're entitled to judge him according to his own ideals and pronouncements. Here's how one historian writing on slavery and manumission, David Bryan Davis, Put it, quote, One cannot question the genuineness of Jefferson's liberal dreams. If he had died in 1784 at the age of 41, it could be said without further qualification that he was one of the first statesmen in any part of the world to advocate concrete measures for restricting and eradicating Negro slavery, end quote. But then, as if describing a pitcher who lost his fastball, Davis added, quote, it is significant that Jefferson's individual efforts had virtually ceased by the time the first abolition societies appeared, quote. Barton wants us to focus on the young, fireballing Jefferson and not the pragmatic, aging curveballer. As is his brand, Barton picks out the parts of Jefferson's words and actions which make his case, but ignores that which works against it. Let's see if we can get this Jefferson right. The Declaration of Independence is certainly Jefferson at the top of his game. On the matter of slavery, the first draft was even better. One of Jefferson's complaints about King George, later removed, was stirring. Quote, he, meaning King George, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold." The proclamation that all men are created equal survived editing and caused no small amount of angst for pro-slavery Southerners in the years to come. There is no question that advocates for civil rights for African Americans had been bolstered by the expression of natural rights in the Declaration of Independence. Many Southern Confederate leaders bristled at Jefferson's words. For instance, South Carolina Senator and later Confederate hero John C. Calhoun disagreed with his fellow Southerner. In an 1848 speech supporting slavery in the Oregon Territory, Calhoun surmised that a future historian might look upon Jefferson's principle as the seed of division, which could tear a nation in two. Calhoun said such a historian might trace the division, quote, to a proposition which originated in a hypothetical truism, but which, as now expressed and now understood, is the most false and dangerous of all political errors. The proposition to which I allude has become an axiom in the minds of a vast many on both sides of the Atlantic, and is repeated daily from tongue to tongue, as an established and incontrovertible truth. It is. That all men are born free and equal. End quote. In his famous cornerstone speech, Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, singled out Jefferson and said that his ideas were, quote, fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. For certain, Jefferson expressed support for the natural rights of human beings. However, there is ample evidence that Jefferson did not live up to his own statements. Perhaps the reason the historian Davis chose 1784 as the year of Jefferson's turning point was because that was the year he introduced a proposal to prohibit slavery in the new territories and states east of the Mississippi But west of the original thirteen states. Jefferson's proposal read, After the year eighteen hundred of the Christian era, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in any of the said states, other than in punishment of crimes. If this proposal had passed, it would have prevented slavery anywhere west of the original thirteen states. Just imagine how different American history would have been if that amendment had passed. However, the proposal failed by one vote. Jefferson was eloquent in his description of the failed vote. He said, quote, There were ten states present, six voted unanimously for it, three against it, and one was divided, and seven votes being requisite to decide the proposition affirmatively it was lost. The voice of a single individual of the state which was divided, or of one of those which were of the negative, would have prevented this abominable crime from spreading itself over the new country. Thus we see the fate of millions unborn hanging on the tongue of one man, and heaven was silent in that awful moment. But it is to be hoped it will not always be silent, and that the friends to the rights of human nature will in the end prevail. End quote. Even though this is striking enough, Barton embellishes it by saying Jefferson introduced a bill which would have ended slavery quote, in all 13 colonies. End quote.
0: When he gets into the National Congress, he introduces the first national law to end slavery in all 13 colonies. It missed by one vote. And in his diary, he said, oh, to God, that he would have changed one heart, that fate of millions of unborn were on this vote. And he has this lengthy thing, God, where were you when we needed one vote?
1: No, actually, the clause would have ended slavery after 1800 everywhere other than the 13 states that once were colonies. The good news is that this clause was the basis for the prohibition of slavery in the Northwest Territories in 1787. When it comes to Jefferson and expanding slavery to the growing United States, there is sadly more to this story, which we will get to very shortly. Earlier, I used baseball imagery. Perhaps now is the time to turn to science fiction, or perhaps even deeper, Jungian psychology. Jefferson had a dark side, a shadow side.
3: Although Barton spends loads of space in The Jefferson Lies, rationalizing Jefferson's actions on slavery, there are two claims which we want to focus on. One is that he paid his slaves for their work, and the other is that he supported emancipation and civil rights his entire life. Barton says Jefferson paid enslaved people for their labor and implied that this practice contributed to his financial debt and difficulties. He wrote in The Jefferson Lies, Jefferson's economic hardship was also exacerbated by his practice, unlike other slave owners, of paying his slaves for the vegetables they raised, meat obtained while hunting and fishing, and for extra tasks performed outside normal working hours. He even offered a revolutionary profit-sharing plan for the products that enslaved artisans produced in their shops.
0: Jefferson has got now 187-plus more slaves And what do you do with that? Well, he pays them for what they do. You know, find other slave owners paying them for what they do. If I'm not mistaken, it's been years since I've read it, but I believe Ellis said that the reason why he kept his slaves is because he was a big drinker and a big spender, and he was yeah. broke, and this was a, he needed to have the slaves to keep Monticello going. No, he was a big spender because he was paying his slaves for the work they did, which put him into such dire straits that he ended up having to sell his library to Congress to make some money to keep things running. But it wasn't because he's a big spender.
3: Anna Burks, manager of public services and collection development at Monticello's Jefferson Library, told me the payment plan wasn't quite as good as Barton makes it seem.
4: I mean, Jefferson, in the end, was responsible for feeding and clothing people who were enslaved. So there certainly they there were rations and there was a certain amount of clothing that they received every year. There were enslaved people who did receive what you might call tips. So he there were young boys that he paid a small amount of money to clean the sewers, um, which is you can imagine, not a pleasant job. I think that I, I recall that there was another situation where one of his enslaved barrel makers, he would allow him to have one out of every 38 barrels that he made, he could keep to sell um, for his own. So there are sort of small ways that that enslaved people could earn wages. Sometimes they could hire themselves out to earn money, but they were still slaves. And that's what it comes back to. Uh, they were still living in slavery ultimately, they didn't have any control over their lives. So at the end of the day, they they were enslaved. And so uh, any amount of money is not going to change. It's not going to change that.
3: Barton's attempt to transfer the reason for Jefferson's chronic debt to his slaves is cruel. Jefferson kept a meticulous record of his expenses. And so it is possible to form some reasonable theories about his financial condition at various stages of his life. For instance, Henry Winsack, author of Master of the Mountain, Thomas Jefferson and His Slaves, points out in his book that in 1801, his first year as president, Jefferson's salary was $25,000. That's $607,000 in today's value. He overspent that amount by nearly $8,600. That's almost $209,000 in today's current value. In today's money, he spent $68,000, or $2,800 in actual 1800 currency, on wine. Jefferson not only had Monticello, but a mansion at Poplar Forest and a mill he had built near Monticello. It is easy to accept historian Stephen Hochman's analysis of Jefferson's finances, here cited by Henry Winsett.
5: And another historian has wrote that when you look at the income side of Jefferson's plantations, he was really doing very well. And that the, Jefferson's problem was what he called the debit side, how much he spent. Uh, and then the, historians, the historian proceeds to add up the money on horses, carriages, wines, etc., etc. Um, and the blow that finally destroyed Jefferson was not uh, the, the burden of supporting his slaves. He co-signed a note for $20,000 for an in-law who promised that he would take care of it, but then but then he went bankrupt.
3: Bringing together the last episode in this one, we can summarize by saying that Jefferson's financial situation most likely influenced his ability to emancipate enslaved people. However, that is not the argument Barton made in The Jefferson Lies. We countered the argument he made, which was that Virginia law made manumission illegal. Of course, after 1782, this was not true. After Barton was caught manipulating Virginia law, he later said Virginia laws favored emancipation by enslavers who were financially better off. No doubt this is true, but we don't believe that exonerates Jefferson. We do not believe a white man's desire for fine wine, exotic plants, rare books, Constant home improvements at Monticello, a life free from hard manual labor, and other accoutrements of a Southern enslaver outweighed the natural right of several hundred human beings to be free just because they were African. David Barton praises Jefferson for his donations to Bible societies and purchases of Bibles and religious books with borrowed money. Every purchase of God's holy word came at the expense of the dignity and freedom of God's holy image bearers being held captive at Monticello. As hard as it might be to accept, Jefferson fully embraced the business side of being an enslaver. Jefferson used his slaves as collateral for a line of credit to finance improvements to Monticello. Furthermore, records show that Jefferson frequently hired out his slaves and leased them to make money. The same Monticello citation that Barton stretches to say that Jefferson paid his workers also says, quote, Jefferson embraced the market and rented slaves, hiring out over 100 of his own slaves to local artisans and tenant farmers who leased portions of his 5,000 acre plantation, End quote. He certainly saw the enslaved as his property. In 1769, he advertised in the Virginia Gazette seeking the return of a runaway slave. Throughout his life, Jefferson hired slave catchers. In 1806, while he was president, Jefferson offered a bonus for a bounty hunter to return Joe, a mulatto slave. Joe was apprehended and returned to Monticello. If one truly abhorred slavery, then doesn't it seem reasonable that one might look the other way, allowing a slave to escape to his or her freedom? Jefferson was interested in the enslaved producing more value for him, and so he wanted to encourage the females to have children since those children would be his property. In a January 17, 1819 letter to the manager of his property, Joel Yancey, Jefferson wanted Yancey to encourage the enslaved women to have more children. Jefferson wrote, quote, I consider the labor of a breeding woman as no object, and that of a child raised every two years is of more profit than the crop of the best laboring man, end quote. He also gave others advice to invest in African slaves, speaking about a friend, J.P. Dario, who was chronically in financial trouble. Jefferson advised that he should have bought slaves, cattle, and land as investments. In a letter dated April 25, 1794, to a relative of Dario's, Madame Plumard de Dellinger, Jefferson said, quote, I may, from the confidence he is pleased to repose in me, venture to affirm that the whole should have been invested in Negroes and cattle, or in good land, not leaving a shilling of it to the risk of any casualty. Jefferson added, quote, Should the favor of his relations be directed towards him in the future, and particularly if you should be so good as to give him any further help without incommoding yourself, I think I may pledge myself that it shall be every farthing of it laid out in lands and negroes, which besides a present support bring a silent profit of from five to ten percent in this country by the increase of their value. Of course, Barton ignored this aspect when presenting Jefferson as a civil rights icon. There may have been another reason for this omission beyond the obvious horror of the nation's third president speaking of human beings like a 4-H project or a commodity. Joel McDermott explains.
0: But also the, the whole thing about stopping the international slave trade, which he had originally written about in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, and it was taken out. And it, it was closed, I believe, during his presidency. And he made a big show of this. And the Virginia theologians made a big show about we were the first ones to oppose the slave trade. Uh, But of course, what they never tell you is that all they did was the reason they did what that is so that they could turn around and open up the domestic slave trade. And the greatest source of slaves for the domestic slave trade was lo and behold, the state of Virginia. And so these guys got rich, filthy rich when the slave trade closed. And they did it by selling off, breaking up families, Everything you heard about on the Atlantic Passage happened in the domestic passage from Virginia down into the lower deep south and all the way out to Texas. So it was a wicked, wicked trade. And the men that engaged in it were conscious of what they were doing. So I, I don't see how those figures can be redeemed historically. We, we take their wonderful, amazing writings about liberty and, equality, and we use those writings to hold them up, thank God for them, and condemn the men who wrote them because they were wicked hypocrites.
3: There is more to this story. Although Barton and others are quick to give Jefferson credit for his proposal to ban slavery in the Northwest Territories, they are silent about Jefferson's moves to allow slavery in the Louisiana Purchase, as well as his support for expanding slavery into Missouri. Again, Henry Winseck.
5: One of his greatest achievements, as we all know, was the Louisiana Purchase. That too had another side. Jefferson was president. The Congress resisted and argued uh, over slavery in the new territory. They resisted it. Congress came very close to absolutely forbidden, forbidding the importation of slaves into the new territory. It only failed by a few votes. Okay, we're in 17, uh, 1803, 1804, 1805. Go back a few. Go back to 1784. Jefferson writes the language for the Ordinance of 1780, 1784, which says that no slave shall be in any new territory formed from you know, outside the existing United States after 1800. So that if slaves were there, the slave owners would have to find 16 years to get out of it, because after 1800, the new, those new territories you know, would not have any slaves. That territory included the future states of Alabama and Mississippi. This was Jefferson's idea in 1784 for curtailing the growth of slavery. Now we have Louisiana. The southern planters in Georgia and um, in South Carolina are saying, look, we've invested in all this land there. It can only be farmed by blacks. We've got to have slavery. Jefferson sends a message to his uh, floor manager in the Senate saying slaves to be admitted to the territory. It was one of the most fateful decisions he ever made. He did not redraw that line in the sand and say, no, we will not have slavery expand. We will curtail it. We will eliminate it. He expanded it. And from that one, it was really game over after that.
3: As Winsex said, Jefferson wrote his Senate ally, John Breckinridge a secret letter with a proposed plan of government for the new territory. In it was a clause which allowed slaves to be brought into the territory as long as they did not come from states or territories which received slaves from the international slave trade. Some authors have aptly called this protectionism for domestic slave trade. Virginia and South Carolina were the two beneficiaries of that fateful decision. Let it sink in that the same man who proposed eliminating slavery in the Western states and territories in 1784 opened the door for the domestic slave trade in the South. If Jefferson ever had a fastball, he certainly lost it during his first term as president. In other words, Jefferson went to the dark side and made it easier for slavery to proliferate. The actual facts of the matter make Barton's words in The Jefferson Lies seem like a parody. Remember, in The Jefferson Lies, Barton wrote, Despite the fact that Jefferson was unable to free his slaves under the requirements of state law, he nevertheless remained a local, national, and even a global voice advocating emancipation. He helped steadily turn the culture in a direction that will allow for equal civil rights to eventually be secured for all Americans regardless of race. Jefferson helped turn the culture, but not toward equal civil rights. As we shall see, Jefferson never had equal civil rights for blacks in his mind.
1: Barton acknowledged in The Jefferson Lies... That colonization societies existed, but didn’t provide a clear description of Jefferson’s position on the subject. He argued that Jefferson was in favor of emancipation without mentioning his lifelong commitment to deportation and colonization. From where I sit, wanting to rid the country of an entire group of people is very different than wanting to secure quote "equal civil rights for all Americans end quote. The fact is that Jefferson didn't want equality for blacks under the United States Constitution. He wanted them deported somewhere else. In Jefferson's autobiography, Jefferson expressed support for deportation. He wrote, Nothing is more certainly written in the Book of Fate than that these people are to be free. Nor is it less certain that the two races equally free cannot live in the same government. Nature, habit, opinion, has drawn indelible lines of distinction between them. It is still in our power to direct the process of emancipation and deportation peaceably and in such slow degree as that the evil will wear off insensibly and their place be peri passu filled up by free white laborers. Perry Passu meant that Jefferson wanted the free white laborers to take the place of slaves as they were being deported. Jefferson expressed this sentiment throughout his life. In his 1781 notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson suggested setting a date and then emancipating all children of enslaved people after that date. Jefferson wrote that those children, quote, should continue with their parents to a certain age, then be brought up at the public expense to tillage, arts, or sciences according to their geniuses, till the females should be 18 and the males 21 years of age, when they should be colonized such such place as the circumstances of the time should render most proper, sending them out with arms, Implements of household and of the handicraft arts, feeds, pairs of the useful domestic animals, etc., to declare them a free and independent people, and extend to them our alliance and protection till they have acquired strength. According to Jefferson, these children would be colonized, in that he intended them to be sent out of the United States to form another nation with support of the U.S their parents would stay behind, and gradually that generation would die off. Just so it's clear Jefferson was referring to segregation, he wrote, quote, It will probably be asked, why not retain and incorporate the blacks into the state? End quote. Good question. Jefferson anticipated that it would be expensive to replace the blacks with white workers, So why not integrate them into American society? Jefferson's answer revealed his darker thoughts on the subject. Quote, Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained. New provocations, the real distinctions which nature has made, and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions which will probably never end but in the extermination of one or the other race, quote. Jefferson proposed essentially the same plan in 1824. In a letter that year, Jefferson told Unitarian minister Jared Sparks that the happiness and safety of whites depended on providing, quote, an asylum to which we can, by degrees, send the whole of that population from among us, end quote. While Jefferson believed that blacks might be able to govern themselves in a colony separate from whites, he also said that black intelligence was not on par with that of whites. One of the key reasons Jefferson believed it would be better to segregate was because he feared race mixing. According to the notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson was concerned about freed slaves, quote, staining the blood of his master, end quote. He wrote, when freed, he is to be removed beyond the reach of mixture, end quote. In the earlier plan mapped out in 1781, Jefferson did not identify where he thought freed blacks should be sent. In his letter to Sparks, Jefferson said Santo Domingo had offered to accept freed slaves. His plan reveals the shadow side of Jefferson. Quote, I think a way in which it can be done, that is by emancipating the afterborn, leaving them on due compensation with their mothers until their services are worth their maintenance, and then putting them to industrious occupations until a proper age for deportation. This was the result of my reflections on the subject 5 and 40 years ago, and I have never yet been able to conceive any other practicable plan. It was sketched in the notes on Virginia under the 14th query. The estimated value of the newborn infant is so low, say, 12 dollars 5 that it would probably be yielded by the owner gratis, quote. When he wrote increase in this letter, he referred to births of children to enslaved women. To colonization supporter Sparks, Jefferson suggested compensating enslavers for newborn slaves at twelve and a half dollars per child. In calculating the cost of transporting these children, he wrote, quote, Suppose the whole annual increase to be of sixty thousand effective births, fifty vessels of four hundred tons burden each, constantly employed in that short run would carry off the increase of every year, and the old stock would die off in the ordinary course of nature, lessening from the commencement until its final disappearance. Jefferson's plan to Sparks was outlined matter-of-factly. However, a stunning aspect of the plan is revealed at the end of the letter where Jefferson wrote, quote, I am aware that this subject involves some constitutional scruples." but a liberal construction justified by the object may go far, and an amendment of the Constitution the whole length necessary. The separation of infants from their mothers, too, would produce some scruples of humanity, but this would be straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel." Not only was Jefferson willing to amend the Constitution to put his plan of segregation into effect, he considered the separation of black babies from their black mothers as being of gnat-like insignificance. All of this is, of course, hypothetical, since nothing like this ever happened. What's incredible is that it was ever suggested. If our purpose was solely to prove that Jefferson became a friend to slavery as he aged, we, we could go on and on. However, principally, we wanted to show that Barton whitewashed Jefferson, and we believe we've done that. However, there is something we need to learn from all of this. As I have worked my way through this material, I keep feeling a kind of whiplash a sense of being jolted back and forth between the ideals of freedom and justice and the reality that freedom and justice were denied to so many people in so many cruel and unusual ways. Although it may be unpopular, Jamar Tisby reminds us that the story of Jefferson isn't unlike the story of America.
2: If we are looking at it, you know, just purely logically, how can people who, on the one hand, be pretty vocally expressive about how bad slavery is, how not in line with the principles of freedom and liberty upon the country was supposedly founded. And then not only enslaved people, he enslaved hundreds of people, right? So it's important to remember Jefferson was extremely wealthy uh, by any era's standards. And part of the display of that wealth was how many people you could afford to enslave. And he he enslaved hundreds, right? So how do those things coexist? But it's actually, Thomas Jefferson and his views are actually, I think, a pretty perfect encapsulation of the dichotomy inherent in the foundation of What became the United States, which is these ideals of freedom and liberty and equality for all while simultaneously making room for and even promoting race based chattel slavery. So I think in Jefferson, you have a human being and an individual in in whom those two facts and realities coexisted. So It doesn't make sense logically but in another way it is kind of the perfect embodied expression of this project we call the united states
1: it doesn't make sense logically but it does make my heart and my head hurt in telling the rest of the story that barton leaves out i hope it is clear that jefferson went over to the dark side of his nature Whatever good he wanted for the nation, he wanted for white people only. Blacks were not a part of his long-range American plan. He treated human beings as property and an investment. He expanded slavery when he could have worked to limit it. We didn't even get into his treatment of the humans he kept in bondage, the meager rations at times, and unsupervised overseers. It appears to me that he allowed his pursuit of extravagance and the appearance of wealth interfere with the application of his principles. As hard as it is to admit and to see, this is true of our nation as well. David Barton and the Christian Nationalists want to celebrate an exceptional America. In contrast, I believe we need an honest America, willing to face truth and
2: humility. That would be exceptional. It's very selective and ripped out of context. So you can find quotes where uh, Jefferson is decrying slavery, including in a clause from the Declaration of Independence that was deleted and it was not included in uh, the final version. So in that one, Jefferson is excoriating the British monarchy for what he said was violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. Now, if that's all you ever read or quoted from Jefferson, you would think, oh, we need to celebrate him for his views on racial equality and uh, a push for emancipation. But that's not what he did. So Jefferson may have had some prick in his conscience to say, you know, owning and treating people like property is probably not good for them, for your own soul, or the soul of this nation. But that never stopped him. (laughs) It never stopped him from enslaving hundreds and, as you say, buying and selling enslaved people. So this is one of the things that with what has become evangelicalism in the United States, when it comes to certain issues of ethics and morality, particularly around race, it has become very intellectualized, very abstract, not embodied, not enacted, right? So when we look at things like slavery, did this person enslave other human beings? If so, those actions speak far louder than whatever words they may have printed on a page in a moment of deep self-reflection or for whatever reason, right? Like That's how we have to unite our intellectual theories and theologies with our actual ethics and practice, which has been historically not a strength of many white Christians in the United States when it comes to race.
1: I think Jamar is telling us why Barton's whitewash was so upsetting to Ray McMillan and the Cincinnati group back in 2012, and why it is so attractive to so many white people. Whitewashing history allows us to stay distant from the awfulness of it, It employs defense mechanisms of denial and intellectualization, which we're accustomed to using. Said differently, I think Barton's whitewash is one dysfunctional reaction to what Joel McDermott talked about in the opening part of this episode. When McDermott faced the ugliness and obscenity of America's racial past, he lost his breath. It was heavy, and he felt weighed down. To me, this is a healthy and reality-based response. I hope to draw out practical implications in upcoming episodes, but for now, let me say we don't need to cancel African American history courses. We don't need fables about how great America was or could be if we returned to a mythical past. We need solid history instruction in our schools, taught by historians, not by wall-building Christian nationalists. It's hard to face the truth, but as Jamar told us in the last episode of Telling Jefferson Lies, it allows us to get history right and make our way toward reconciliation. In the next episode, we want to take a look at what happened after David Barton's book was pulled from publication. Over the year that followed that event, Christian leaders positioned themselves and their organizations in relationship to Barton and Wall Builders. In the next episode, Conspiracy of Silence, I want to take a close look at how two organizations, Family Research Council and Focus on the Family, handled the awareness that they were promoting historically flawed information to their constituents. You will hear from some of the over 30 Christian historians who came together to demand that the organizations take action. Telling Jefferson Lies is written and produced by Warren Throckmorton. Today's installment was hosted by Warren Throckmorton and Michael Coulter. The podcast is brought to you by the second edition of Getting Jefferson Right, Fact-checking Claims About Thomas Jefferson by Throckmorton and Coulter. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or just about anywhere books are sold. For more information, go to gettingjeffersonright.com. Today's closing song is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot by the Tuskegee Institute Singers. Telling Jefferson Lies theme song is The World Awaits Us All by Roman Candle background music today was provided by Jonathan Swaim and Warren Throckmorton see the show notes for more credits if you have any suggestions get in touch with me and let me know please like the podcast and spread the word on social media every podcaster says that but it really does help and it makes us feel good too thanks for listening